Well, good morning. This is a great weekend indeed. A, a lot of ascension is happening, ascending to the throne of graduation for some, perhaps. But of course, uh, we believe today is also the, the celebration of a great ascension. I, I lead this way because uh, this sermon is a little bit ironic. Uh, again, while there is many ascension, uh, if you will, uh, in this city, and for for good reasons and beautiful things, uh, it's a beautiful time of year when we celebrate what we believe is God's common grace, grace that is for all people of, of all faiths and none, that is manifest in the restraining of evil and, and doing good in this world. And yet, we also acknowledge, ironically, that all of that common grace is not that kind of grace that can lead us to that utopian vision that we're all working for. That there's a kind of grace that is supernatural and special, and it's revealed only in the ascent of Christ. Today, therefore, uh, I will be preaching, and it's a bit ironic, but, but on yet another college that met uh, just last week. Uh, it's this College of Ascension, I'll call it. You'll see a picture of those who participated up there. We were in Cleveland for the Mission Anabano, which Anabano means Ascension. And uh, it was a college of sorts. We rolled up our sleeves and we're collaborating together on a theological vision that begins with the ascension of Christ. Often ascension is what we often can describe as the forgotten historical event of salvation. Historia salutis in the Latin. What I mean by that is we often celebrate, don't we, in the year uh, of the incarnation, Christ's birth, and Christmas. We celebrate, of course, the Friday, the Good Friday, we call it, of Christ's death on the cross and his ascension, third day letter on Resurrection Sunday or Easter. But what happened to ascension? And ironically, ascension is perhaps the most significant for us today. For, for to be sure, what Christ accomplished in his incarnation was once and for all accomplished, and it is the basis for what we describe as the gospel of grace. That is, that we are justified by grace, through faith in Christ, satisfying the punishment for us on the cross and being raised on the third day to vindicate that he satisfied all of God's wrath and justice. But then he ascended into heaven. And that is the very ministry that we participate in today, a ministry of, of Christ's ascent. And so I want us to turn our thoughts a bit to this idea of the ascension of Christ as it happens, every one of us in that picture will be preaching this sermon either today or in the next Sunday in celebration of Ascension Week. And so we agreed to preach this passage together at all of our congregations, so you're in solidarity with that. But I thought I'd first give you a taste of, of the college itself. And so I'm going to let you hear a testimony by, by um, Dan Heron over in um, uh, Bloomington, Illinois, planning a church there. Some of you know him. He did a retreat for us. Why don't we let him speak about what God is uh, doing in that, that time together? All right, yeah, go ahead. Great. My name is Dan Heron. Uh, I've been planting a church in Bloomington, Indiana for the last seven years. That's where Indiana University is. We're also uh, paired with an RUF campus minister to start an RUF at IU as well. And we're in the process of moving toward having elders that we hope to uh, particularize in the fall. So one of the reasons why uh, MA has been so valuable to me uh, number one, it's been a place to develop camaraderie with other church planters who are wrestling in very similar contexts. Post-Christian, uh, high culture, uh, very generally very pretty well-educated uh, communities 
and just learning how to wrestle with building relationships, but also probably even more importantly, uh, what does it look like to suffer faithfully? And that has been a powerful aspect to my relationships in Anabino. Just being able to learn from other men of uh, greater age and wisdom, but also being able to have guys to walk alongside me in that process as they, as they themselves have experienced that aspect of following Jesus. Uh, a second part that has been impactful for me with MA is just growing in my trust of the church and the understanding of the church of Jesus Christ as being an essential aspect of his mission of bringing salvation to the world, that the church is essential. It's not a secondary thing, but he evangelizes through the body. He brings maturity and brings blessing through his body. And so for me personally, it's been especially powerful to learn how to trust his church more and more, and in a way kind of become more Presbyterian over time, uh, becoming more of who we really are in our confessionalism, in our Presbyterian polity. Uh, another aspect I would say finally is just learning how to, to think and live out our sacramental identity and calling as Christians uh, in the world. We're in a world that uh, is in a vacuum uh, looking for a meta-narrative, a larger narrative to tell them who they are, an identity, uh, to even explain what the world is about and what the world means. Well, in the story of the gospel, we have a Lord who created uh, the world and the entire universe to originally be sacramental where we would be able to experience him and know him through our experience of the creation that was then fractured, right? So even the sacramental intentionality of God uh, was destroyed at the beginning through sin, but it's through Jesus, right? God tabernacling in our midst where physical, spiritual is brought together once again. And so we are able then to experience uh, a uh, like a, a reborn, a restored sacramental identity that is then promised in the life to come. Right, that, that heaven will come down to earth and God himself will dwell in our midst. And so just even thinking about what is the story and how does the story look, beginning and the end, and what does that mean for us now, it is given a whole new meaning and, and a fullness of meaning and expression uh, to what the sacraments actually are in the church. In my own participation in uh, the Lord's sacraments, in the way I communicate, the way I lead, the way I teach and shape uh, the church God has called me to plant uh, with regard to this important uh, and vital aspect. Amen. Well, you got a sermon and you're going to get another one. No, very, very special, good friend. But uh, you noticed a couple of themes there. This idea of the church is a vital. And, and how, would you, how would you make that case? We live in a world that doesn't believe that. And oftentimes, even in most, the most evangelical, if you will, and populist Christian uh, you're seeing a, a, a season where people don't really believe in the church, and we're having to rediscover that. And of course, where would you turn? Uh, well, he mentioned it, that there is something about the church that's more than just a best practice or a human idea. We believe, as the church has believed for 2,000 years, that it is the very ascension presence of Christ on earth by the Holy Spirit in a unique and special way. So today I want to look at a passage that is really crucial to that idea. The passage, of course, being in Ephesians, quoting from Psalm 68. And I'm going to use this language of liturgy, the liturgy of ascension. Now, if I think about the church, we think about liturgy. Now, what is liturgy? Lit liturgy is simply the manner of social order in the life of the church, wherein the communion of saints becomes the life-giving communion 
of Christ. Let me say that a little bit slower because I think what you're going to find in this definition of, quote, liturgy, which literally breaking down in its etymology means the work of the people, is it's the ordinary flesh on flesh, everybody participating in it, mystery that becomes the flesh of Christ. Not organically, but really and spiritually and mystically united to the flesh of Christ in heaven. There is a mystery here. And that is a great thesis that needs to be uh, critiqued. And we're going to do it today in a way that I think will then agree that it's true. But by liturgy of ascension now, I'm talking about you guys. I'm talking about how we live together. And what does God see happening as we live our life together and all the ebb and flow ways that we do as the body of Christ, the family of God. And so with that, let's turn uh, to this passage in Ephesians, but let's pray first. Father, thank you for this day. We pray your spirit now would reveal to us the glory of the ascended Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray even now that you would help us to understand our place in that ascension through this passage and how special that place is in the life of the church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So how is it that Christ's flesh in heaven is in communion with our flesh on earth? How is that so? It's described in the scripture as what? The body of Christ. And interchangeably, the body of Christ can go from Christ's body on earth to the body of Christ now on earth that is now the church. We see that, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, where he uses this language, the bread being the bread, the body of Christ, and then he starts talking about the church as that bread that we eat together. There is a socialization idea here. How we socialize together is becoming a sacred thing when I use the word liturgy to describe it. And so the way we pattern our several activities in relation to our joint activities, the way we relate one congregation to another congregation, how we relate one demographic of the local church to another, the ministries of the church, when and how we construct target ministries. These are decisions now that are not just, uh, what's the best practice way to do things? We're actually thinking about the flesh-on-flesh mystery of Christ's presence on earth and how we most efficiently and fully represent that unique presence of Christ in the way we do church. I say that because many of us are in a planning season. We're going to be going off the, the staff to a retreat this weekend, and we're going to be bogged down in these kinds of questions. And to you, the staff, and the elders, and the WLB, and others who are planning, I want you to hear this sermon speaking to you, that it's not in vain. What seems so ordinary is not so ordinary after all, but again, I need to show you this in Scripture. So look at our passage. The very most important aspect of this, this manner of which the life of Christ is transfused into the flesh-on-flesh -flesh life of the church, where do we see that? Well, look at this verse 7. That's where I want to focus us especially. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, now look what he does. He says, grace has been given that we might become the charismata, the spirit-filled gift or service of Christ in the church. That's what that word means. And then he notes that that is what is the meaning of ascension. Look, when he ascended on high, 
he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now to understand this powerful statement, Paul recognized that he's speaking to those who would have been familiar with the Old Testament. Psalm 68, we heard it read. What is it? What is he talking about? Well, there in Psalm 68, you heard it. It's the story of, and it begins with a great, great battle where Yahweh, the Lord, goes down into the ditches and the trenches of a great battle with his chariots and with his horses, and there's this image of a great battle. And in that great battle, there's a descent, if you will, the Lord onto the earth. And where he conquers, and then in his conquering, he takes those who were once prisoners and he sets them free. He sets the prisoners free. And those very prisoners now become the servants of Yahweh. And you end in this great and amazing vision of all the great captives set free, processing into the holy presence of God in the holy temple sanctuary of God. And you hear that last scene, you heard it, of, of everybody coming together with their music and their singing and their praise, all in the service to the glory of God. Paul has this in mind. It's just a, a chilling image if you think about it. For he says again, how does he start? Paul begins chapter 4, verse 1. It's really interesting and not surprising though. I therefore, a what? A prisoner for the Lord. Once a prisoner to my sin, once a prisoner of Satan, the Lord has taken me now captive to himself, not to that foreign Lord. And he says, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, like I, to walk in a manner worthy of his calling to which you have been called. To walk in a manner. There's no more ordinary word in one sense. He's describing now just again that socialization, that way we live life together as Christians. But now he says, do so in a manner worthy of your calling. What is that calling? Well, that's where he'll continue, to which you have been called. But again, I want you to see that first point. The prisoner for the Lord, from prisoner of enemy Satan to now the servant of Yahweh. Psalm 68 then goes on. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving the gifts from among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Paul makes further explanation of that passage in verse 9. He says, in saying he ascended, well, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. Most scholars believe and agree that he's saying he went into hell for us. He went to hell for us. He fought that battle of eternal death. And then such as to save us from what? The prison of death. And then here, and he uses the temple-related word, fill. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens. The very story that you saw in 68. That he might fill all in all things. This word fill is a very big word, if not short as well. That is to say that that it's a word that repeats over and over again in the book of Ephesians. You might even could say legitimately that the whole letter of Ephesians is 
explicating what does it mean to be filled in Christ, to be complete in Christ. Notice then the emphasis in our passage on fullness and fills, because this is going to show up again and concludes a theme that began all the way back in chapter 1. Very briefly, let me rehearse what we've seen in all of Ephesians, for instance. In Ephesians, he gives this great summary um, of what it is that, that Christ has accomplished for us in the incarnation ministry. All of these rights and these privileges, the forgiveness of sins, being sealed by the Holy Spirit for heaven itself. He talks about all these privileges that we've got. And then halfway through the chapter, he says, and for this reason, I continue to pray for you. And you go, hold it. Is there more? And that's the point of Ephesians. He says, you bet there's more. You want to go back and read it today, that whole list of what we have in Christ by virtue of his already accomplished work on the cross. It's all that is accomplished by his going into hell, suffering for us and, and on our, on our, on our forsake. But then he goes, for this reason, I continue to pray that you, and he goes on to say, by the working of his great might, now that he's ascended, he describes him as seated at the right hand where he's been raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named. He goes on and says, now that Christ has ascended, there's more. And what is that more? He describes it this way. He describes it through a great power and illumination that will become us. And then he says it this, and then he concludes this way, and above every name that is named, not only in the age, but also in the age to come, where he put all things under his feet and gave them as head over all things to the academy, to the state, to the family, to individuals, nope, to the church which is his, what, Paul? Body. Body. Flesh. The fullness, there's that word, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is so powerful, but it's yet to be proven. It's kind of like the beginning of a, of a, of a novel, and you go, what is he talking about? <laughs> and every chapter afterwards is going to explain it. What does it mean that the church is linked to the ascension of Christ in a manner that we experience the fullness of him who fills all in all? You may be asking good question, like, well, what, what else is there to be accomplished that was not already accomplished in the cross? Well, in the cross, it's true that Christ accomplished what we call uh, the pardon of sin or justification. He satisfied the legal requirements of the covenant both in, in doing, being, by his performance of righteousness, keeping the covenant that was made with Adam and all his posterity, but also by his satisfying the judgment that was rightly due us. And in doing that, we have justification. But then what is to remain then? Isn't that it? Isn't that the gospel? Most people say, what is salvation? Oh, it's to be forgiven for sins and destined for heaven. And that's true. But how do we access all of that? There are other doctrines. If you were to follow the, the, the doctrines that we believe, for instance, in our own confession of faith, you have things like effectual calling or regeneration. You have saving faith and repentance. 
You have sanctification. You have perseverance and glorification. These are all doctrines that are yet to be accomplished except by Christ's ascension. His power and his illumination, he describes it in chapter 1, that we still need, even though that's been done historically, we need to remember it, we still need Christ's power now. And that's the point of chapter 1. In chapter 2, then, the fullness related to the church is defined as a temple. Especially, Paul doesn't speak of the church's temple here as a metaphor now. This language of filling is, is imagining the very filling of the Shekinah glory cloud of God upon the temple and tabernacle as it wandered through the wilderness, as it landed in Jerusalem on the Holy Zion Hill. It's this real filling of the power, glory of God in the spirit that he's talking about that makes a temple a temple. If you were to say to me, what makes a temple a temple? Well, you could start talking about some architecture in the Old Testament. You could start talking about some, some various other aspects in the New Testament. But at the end of the day, what makes a temple a temple is that of all the common places that are in this city or in this world, there is a place, and I emphasize the word place, geography. There is a people that when they come together and the Holy Spirit descends into the midst of them, it becomes the very temple presence of God, a sacred presence. And that's the language that we see, so that you are no longer now strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with other Christians and members of the household of God. What household of God? Whenever you use the word house of God, usually we're referring to the temple in the Old Testament. And it goes on to say, for you were built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom this whole structure being joined together, that's a key word I'm going to look at later, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Chapter 3 begins to explain that. How it is that in this temple you may be granted to be strengthened with great power, through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may, what? Dwell, dwell in you. That is a mystery. And so the result here is that we would then experience verse 19 of chapter 3, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's a mystery, he says. That you may be, here it is, filled with all the fullness of God. Already in chapter 3 now, we've seen this language of fill and fullness four times. I'm obviously setting you up for our passage, aren't I? Here the fullness results in a mature personhood. Now what does he mean by that? He's not talking about persons individually. He's thinking of a corporate person. And a person, a corporate person that has come of age. Think about that. It's like a developmental term. This corporate person, the body of Christ, began in Eden. And in its very embryonic phase, began to develop as it moved through history, redemptive history, and it became the very household of God under the patriarchs, becoming later the great tabernacle in the wilderness and later the temple in Mount Zion. But always there has been this corporate person, this body politic 
that is attached to the very presence of God, the filling of God's Spirit. And that's what he's talking about, that there is a kind of stature, a maturity that he's saying, you, the church of Jesus Christ, are in that mature phase of development with respect to this corporate person, the church. Do you see who you are? You are what the Old Testament was looking forward to, the coming of the great Messiah, the ascent of the Messiah into heaven, and the giving of, of taking prisoners captive that were captive, making them free from hell itself, setting them free to be now captive to the service of Christ with great power. Anecdotally, just by historical observation, I've said this before, but just study how, how what was the bandwidth of the geography of the church from Eve to the, the dawning of the Messiah in the first century? How expansive had it gotten? This commission to Adam and Eve to, to multiply, to expand the temple presence of God to all the earth, the great commission that was given to Adam, how, how, much, how far had they gone? Hardly out of the Middle East. Within literally decades of the ascension of Christ, it expanded throughout the world. Boom! This is power. We have got to rediscover it, Christians. Christendom and the way in which it, it formed some kind of a, a syncretism with with modern politics and modern everything, we reduced ourselves to something much more paltry. Yes, we don't have the spires and the pomp and the circumstance, but there is a power in the church that is awesome. And here, that's what he's talking about. The fullness of time has come, says Paul. Even he is, he is suffering, but he sees this power. And so here we have in, fir in the first three chapters what now brings us to the fourth. Paul picks up there after talking about being this prisoner and now being set captive. He says, look, there's one body and one spirit. Now I want you to stop there. If you've read those verses before and you just went through it almost like it's metaphor, I want you to read that slowly. There is one body. Hold it. Christ's body? Our bodies, Christ's body in heaven, our bodies on earth, one body. Why? Because there's one spirit. One body, one spirit, just as you were called, that's the calling that he mentioned earlier, to be that body, infused by the power of the Holy Spirit. As you gather together, working together as a team, you become that corporate body. Very powerful. Me, Preston Graham, the individual, doesn't have this kind of power. I know that's kind of a modern addition of individualism and personal filling of the Spirit. But yes, I have the Spirit living in me. I would not be able to profess faith in Christ without it. But Paul here is not talking about that per se. He's talking about the mystery of how we become one body in Christ and the power that we are together in our liturgy, if you will, 
of life on life together in the world. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. I mean, Paul could not, and we just go right through that. We just brush right through that in our little daily devotion. In all, through all, in all, that's cool. Boom, go to the next. No, slow down. In all? Really, Paul? Through all? Really, Paul? This is amazing. He cannot mass words enough. And then that's what he says. For grace was given to which one of us, each one of us, according to their measure. See, only we, as an individual, I only have a measure of that power. It's when my measure fits with your measure and your measure and your measure that we become this powerful manifestation of the ascent of Christ, Lord of Lord and King of Kings on earth as it is in heaven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Here it comes, full circle. Fullness to be filled and why it is that he starts with the church, the body of Christ, as the location, the epicenter for all that to happen. You heard that testimony that Dan gave. The church has come of age. What is the job description of these, these organizing gifts, I will call it? He talks about to equip the saints for the work of service. This word equip is the word sometimes translated men. It's also used to mean to organize. It's to liturgicalize, if I could use that term. It's used, for instance, in, by Paul to Timothy, he says, set in order things in Crete. That is to go and organize a church for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the true unity of the faith. This idea of building up. And then this language again of being joined and held together. Every joint which is being equipped. What's going on here? It's the role of the evangelist, the role of the apostle, the prophet, etc., to come together working with the church and to literally join the measures together to become the body of Christ. I mean, if I had an image in my head, if you're going to use the metaphor of the body, Paul uses it elsewhere. It's bringing together all these desperate members of bodies. I know it's kind of gross. Fingers and fingernails, I don't know. Toes and feet and legs and arms and noses and heads and ears and eyes and and let's stitch it all together in a manner that it works in an organic one. An organic one. United together, one body, not many. As a pastor for now over 30 years, I just can't tell you how modernity is toxic to that. The movements that came after the Enlightenment Pressuring and emphasizing individualism against, against communalism, populism, against a, 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 a revelation-based way of dis assessing success rather than populist ways, democratization versus lordship of Christ. It just goes on and on and on. I'm interpreting the scripture the way it's been interpreting historically, but I'll guarantee if you've been in a Bible study in the last 20 years, you haven't heard this. Not much. It's been individualized. All about me and my spiritual gifts or something like that. 
It's true. We all have spiritual gifts. All have a measure. We ought to discern those things, but we discern them with each other as we knit together in a complementary way. It's beautiful what's being described here by these words. And so this idea of being built up regarding the formation um, of the temple in the life of the church. Again, this idea of being built up is the same word being translated early in chapter 2, being joined together in Ephesians 4.16. The miracle of the transfused power of God's Holy Spirit and bringing the Spirit is, is as if here sinews and, and tendons and bringing all these muscles and all these bones together in this powerful manifestation of the flesh of Christ on earth. What's the summary here? The summary is that Paul's description of the church is one of being united to Christ in sacred union by the mystery of engrafting our flesh into the flesh of Christ in heaven. Such a description renders it almost absurd to think of the church and our life together as something less than a topic of salvation. It's the means through which, it's not the agent, God is the agent, the Holy Spirit is the agent, but it's the means through which God by the Spirit brings about regeneration and rebirth and, and on it goes. Now there's a question in my head because I became a Christian outside the church. And it's true in that context it wasn't a church as defined by the apostles, but the message I got, the communion that I had with, with other Christians, even to some degree the accountability, while they were pale and incomplete replicas, they all manifested what had been handed down by the church, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. The church was there and I didn't know it, even though it was another ministry, a parachurch, if you will. It's true. There's a great power. This church is so powerful that even when the church manifests itself in ways that are less complete and pale, they're still powerful. The salvation is what we're about. You saw the great quote that I put by reformer John Calvin. He was saying nothing that uh, controversial in his day. This would not have been a controversial statement. But he says it this way, I'll read it a little bit more. He, we acknowledge without any circumlocution, that means without any equivocation, without any doubt, we acknowledge that the flesh of Christ is life-giving. Not only because once and for our salvation it was obtained, not only because what he did in the incarnation ministry, but because now we have been united to him in sacred union, and it breathes life into us. Have you ever thought about that? Christ up in heaven, his sacred body, and he's breathing from his glorified body life into our life by the Holy Spirit in the sacred union. Because being by the power of the Spirit and grafted into the body of Christ, we have a common life with him. While Christ, you would think, is absent from us, he goes on to say, to the body, by his Spirit, however, he dwells in us and through us and with us. And from that, he concludes, they therefore are insane. I love his frankness here. They therefore are insane who are neglecting this means, hope to be perfect in Christ, 
as is the case with some fanatics, which is what they were called back then, today it's mainstream, those fanatics, he says, who pretend to sacred revelations of the Spirit and the proud who content themselves with the private readings of the Scripture and imagine that they do not need the ministry of the church. Wow. That, that's the fanatics. Today that is 80% mainstream. We need a reformation. That's what the College of Ascension is about, a reformation. Well, let's take this home. Our confession, maybe you're asking, um, Pastor, this is great, but does, your, does our confession say this stuff? It does. Chapter 26, 350 years ago, we still subscribe to it as a church. All saints and Christians that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship, communion with him. In his graces, there it is again, this language coming from Paul, his sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And therefore, we are by virtue of our union with Christ being united to one another as the body of Christ. Having communion in each other's gifts and graces, that's what Paul was talking about, wasn't it? And on it goes, life together. The take-home is this. In an evangelical world that minimizes the life of the church to a mere event at best, as not important at worst, again, very much prevalent in our day and age, this passage offers a much-needed correction. Namely, the very social interactions and the social orders that we call the church, the corporate body of Christ, they are not merely best practices or some kind of a human ingenuity, they are truly the salvific presence of God. Now here's three things. That is to say that if you want to become a Christian and experience the fullness of your salvation, the totalness of Christ, you're leaving this city today, go find you a church. Go find you a church. A church that's defined by those classic five marks, gospel-centered, missional, confessional, which means Bible-centered, sacramental, which means worship-centered, and communal, which means there's shepherding and, and officers charged with mediating the presence of Christ as your Lord and Savior. Five marks. And there is special things that happen in such a church. There's no perfect church, and we err. But God manifests himself powerfully through it. We need to discover that. For those of you who are going to be engaging and planning this week and in the weeks to come, I hope this will give, I know what I'm looking for is a little patience. It's worthwhile. Going back into the weeds and looking at all the things that are happening in the life of our world and the church, it can get tedious, it can get hard, it can get oh, exhausting. But when you sit down as a team leader, SLB, and you're thinking about how can I envision this little team functioning like the presence of Christ in this church, you have a great task, and it's where salvation happens. I implore you, I exhort you, team leaders, do not minimize the importance of discipling and ministering to your team praying with one another, 
seeing ourselves as not just an organization bureaucracy, but the lifeblood of Jesus in the life of the people who participate. Those are the two things. There's something about liturgy that, you know, some things are taught, but most things are caught. I think of liturgy because it's kind of mundane. I think of the word liturgy because it's those habits and rituals and, and, and those ebb and flows. And now we begin to see that inspired and infused by the Spirit, the very liturgy of our social existence together becomes very personal and very real in our relationship with God. Your participation in that socialization, no matter what you're doing, we've got people working that up there, we've got people working this over here, every bit of it is the measure of God's grace that puts together this most powerful of institutions. And as we rightly celebrate, even this week and other weeks that are to come, the, the glory of God that is so gracious to restrain evil through common grace and the beautiful things that are done in the life of universities and states and other organizations, I really mean that. We don't diminish that at all. You will be incredibly exasperated if you're expecting of those things what only Christ by his church can bring, which is the kingdom of God, the utopia that we all work so hard for. To him be praise and glory, the ascended Lord. Amen.